Father, the insights you have given us are incredible. The things that are going to transpire here on this earth would be difficult to believe if it were not for the fact of prophecy. You declaring things before they take place and calling into being those things which are not. We had asked, Lord, that in these last days, as we even celebrate Christmas, we would think soberly about what is the fate of all humankind. And we ask, Lord, that you would not only equip us and embolden us, but give us a heart for those who are lost. And as we learn about end times things, we ask that you would fill us full of your spirit. Motivate us, Lord, to be your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are going to hopefully make it through... Both things today, which are going to be the great white throne judgment, the millennium we just went through, and then the new heaven and the new earth. And then once we do that, we're going to go back to Matthew 24 because you'll have a context in which to understand that. But as I've done every Sunday, I want to make sure that you guys understand the timeline that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. It is the... 70, uh, excuse me, the AD 70, where the temple was destroyed, Jesus prophesied that that would take place. The next thing on the timeline is going to be the Gog, Magog invasion, rapture. It's all going to be around the same time there. The Antichrist shows up. He makes a treaty with the nation of Israel, which begins the seven years of tribulation. The time period between Gog, Magog, and the rapture, we're not quite sure how long that's going to be. It's going to be soon. But when that takes place, then the Antichrist will sign that treaty. And in the middle of the treaty, he allows the Israelites, the Jews, to rebuild their temple. And he will stand in that temple at three and a half years into that treaty, declare himself to be God. This is called the abomination which makes desolate, according to the prophet Daniel, as well as Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and Mark chapter 13 as well as Luke chapter 21. It's all discussed there. Then the tribulation will come to a close uh, with the the seals begin with, then the trumpets, and then the bold judgments are poured out in the last couple of years, and billions of people are going to die. Jesus is going to come back to the Mount of Olives, uh, Zechariah chapter 14. His foot is going to land on the Mount of Olives. There's going to be a great valley and an earthquake that are exposed at that time, and half the land will go to the north, half the land will go to the south, and he will walk into the gate beautiful there, and he will establish his millennial kingdom. At that time, the wicked will be taken away and held for ultimate judgment. And those people who remain during and after the tribulation period will repopulate the earth in their normal bodies. We have already been raptured. So we have our new bodies, our resurrected bodies. Then there's a thousand years that Jesus will reign and rule from Jerusalem. Of course, we saw last time that from Isaiah, that somebody who lives to be only a hundred will be considered a child, so there will be longevity for those people who exist during the millennium who repopulate the earth. At the end of that millennial reign of Christ, 1,000-year reign according to the book of Revelation, Satan will be released for a short period of time to deceive the nations again, and then God says, that's enough, and he destroys them, he destroys earth, and heaven 
the, the heavens that we know, he destroys it all. Then the great white throne judgment takes place. After the great white throne judgment, people are either assigned to bliss in eternity or to hell for all of eternity. And then he creates the new heaven and the new earth. So that's the timeline that we're looking at. Right now, we are at the point of looking at the great white throne judgment. But just by review, the millennial period, some people believe we're in the millennium, which is, I don't believe is true. I had several points, uh, 11 to be exact, that I gave you last time. There's this idea of the first resurrection. The first resurrection is in three parts. There is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Then there's the rapture of the church, and that's two sections. Those who are dead in Christ will rise. Then those who remain and are alive until the coming of the Lord, they also go to meet the Lord in the air in that order. And then once the tribulation takes place, those underneath the altar who have been beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 20, Verse 4 says that they will be resurrected. They will also be given new bodies, as well as the Israelites in Ezekiel chapter 37. The Israelites who were righteous in the days of old will be resurrected. They will be in Jerusalem, and they will repopulate, or they will be the kingdom that is in Jerusalem. And Jesus will be the king, but also king. he's king over everything. But David will be resurrected as well, and he will be the king over Israel. And I suspect that there's going to be kings or rulers all over the different nations throughout the earth because the Lord clearly tells us there are going to be nations during that time. And then once that takes place, then the judgment comes. And so there's the first resurrection. Israelites are included before the millennium uh, begins and Israel will no longer be divided into northern and southern kingdom. King David will be resurrected. There will be no more wars. Longevity of life will be the mode of the day during the millennium, a time of prosperity for all. Wild animals will no longer be a danger and children will play with deadly snakes and everyone will know the Lord. Saints will rule with Christ in wars or world war against Jesus at the end of the millennium. That will be the final battle that takes place, and that's where Jesus destroys everyone. So those are the things that we pointed out last week that are characteristics of the millennium. That's why it hasn't taken place yet. And this is not an exhaustive list of everything that takes place in the millennium, but I thought 11 points were enough. Then there is what is known as the great white throne judgment. That is in the book of Revelation. I'd like you to grab your Bibles and turn there so you can read it for yourself. But this is a time where God says the, the days of human beings on earth have come to a close. There is no longer going to be anyone that survives past this that will live in the flesh. Everyone will be transformed. Our old natures, the sinful nature, will be taken away from everyone at that point who believes in God and his plan, and everyone else who has rejected Jesus Christ, they will exist forever in what we know as hell or the lake of fire, Gehenna. So in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, here we see that earth and the universe are destroyed and removed from all existence. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Now I'd also like you to hold your finger in the book of Revelation and turn over to Second Peter, chapter 3. 
This is where we get the reinforcement that God is, in fact, going to destroy everything that exists here in this physical world, both universe and in our earth. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, we're going to read through verse 13. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Now with that, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Solomon was the author of Ecclesiastes, and if you had to pick one word that was the theme of Ecclesiastes, do you guys know what that word would be? It's mean, vanity. Meaninglessness is what the NIV says, but vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And the, the whole book deals with that theme. And he is the wisest king that has ever lived. There will never be anybody wiser than him except for Jesus Christ that is here on the earth. Once we get to the new kingdom, all of us will be, we'll look at Solomon and say, he was so ignorant. And we'll, we'll have such wisdom that God will give to us at that point. But on earth here, there is no king that is going to exist or has ever existed that is as wise as Solomon. Now, I want you to read, uh, read along with me here. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Generations come and generations co- go, but the earth remains forever. Now, when you read this, up next to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, there seems to be a contradiction. Because Ecclesiastes says, The earth remains forever. Now, we've talked about this in the men's group, but I want to make sure I expand on it for you guys as well. The word that is used here, forever, in the Hebrew is holam. And the root meaning of this word, it is pointing to what is hidden in the distant future. It really doesn't mean, in our understanding, forever, like all of eternity. It's not the word everlasting. It is another word that is used, in, like the New English translation does a good job on translating this particular word. It says, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains the same through the ages. And if you take that in context with the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that the temporalness of our existence here, both us and the animals and even the plant life, It is temporary compared to the duration that the earth exists. And that's why Solomon referred back and said, it's meaningless. You know, no matter what you do, it has been done before. No matter what you think you're going to accomplish, there's nothing new under the sun. And so he's saying that life is vanity. And at the end of the book, he said, there's two things you want to do. Find pleasure in your work and serve God. That's it. He said, because this life is passing away. Of course, that's one of the wisest things that could ever have been said. 
What is our purpose here? To find enjoyment in your work and serve God. And so that's what God calls us to. He was not making a doctrinal statement, a theological statement saying the earth will remain forever. And of course, the Jehovah Witnesses believe the earth is going to remain forever. And so we have some narratives, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, and also the book of Revelation. We know that the earth is going to be destroyed. And God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. So I wanted you to just to have that, to kind of tuck it in your pocket or your belt or your purse and, and just know that the earth is not going to last forever. It is coming to an end. And by the way, with that in our universe, if God does not actively destroy it, our earth and the universe would eventually just run down like a wind-up toy. Everything is going from order to disorder. That means it was wound up in the beginning, and now it's slowly going down. That's why automobiles rust. That's why we grow old and die. That's why trees grow old, get rot, and they decay. That's why our entire universe, even the stars, the astronomers will tell us, they end up blowing up. And when all that happens, it doesn't continue on. And as far as, well, new stars are being created, I have never seen one created. And I love astronomy. And they say, you know, things just congeal, kind of like gel. They come together and they just create themselves. I have never seen that example. And that's a theory which is out there. But God says everything is going from order to disorder or order to randomness. And that's the universe in which we live. But God is going to intercede in that too, and he's going to destroy everything. Also, at the great white throne judgment, back in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, verse 12, says, books are open containing every deed of every individual that will be judged. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. I want to tell you something. You do not need to fear Google. Google is watching you wherever you go. They are having algorithms put out there to determine what you're going to buy, when you're going to buy it, where you're going to go, why you're going to go there. They're trying to figure it all out mathematically, and they're keeping a record of it. That's why they have these huge server farms. I'm sure you haven't uh, read that in the news. It's kind of secretive. They're keeping track of every single thing. Back in the... uh, Clinton administration, they had, they told us that they had this program called Echelon. Echelon records every single phone call, text, email that you have and saves it forever. So everything that we've ever done, it's saved and they have access to that. It's not even close to God's books. God's books is not only going to have the deeds, but it's going to have the intents in there as well and it we're going to be judged according to those things well we'll be judged at a different throne but this is the great white throne judgment where everyone who has ever been born or who has not already been resurrected will be here at this time the entire world's population for all time thirdly those whose names are written in the book of life have accepted god's plan for salvation 
Now, those who have done this, there are any righteous people from the time of Adam until Moses. Those people who were righteous during that time period, you know, before uh, the flood, uh, if there was anyone who was righteous that died at that time, they will be there because Israel wasn't established yet. Israel got established when there was Moses in the land and, and you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and those righteous people in there. God tells us in Ezekiel 37 that they will be resurrected for the millennium, the righteous that are there. But before that, I'm sure there were some righteous people that existed during that time. And, and so, like for instance, Melchizedek, if he is a real individual, will probably be resurrected at that time. He wasn't part of Abraham. He was separate, but he believed in the same God. So he will probably be resurrected at that time. Then, in the millennial reign of Christ, there are going to be some people who die. And those people who die that are righteous will be resurrected at this particular point. Some teachers and preachers have said, the great white throne judgment is only for those who are unsaved. It is not true because there are those who got saved who died, like I just said, in the millennium. And there are ones that follow Christ. And there's the possibility that we're going to have people there that uh, are righteous as well. And so they'll be resurrected and they'll be given new bodies and they will enter into eternity like that. Uh, fourthly, those whose names are not written in the book of life, have not accepted God's plan for salvation. That is the, the criteria for not being in there. And if, I think it will maybe be a shock to some, maybe not, but they start looking for the name. Uh, no, it's not in there. Uh, it's nowhere. Going back and forth in the pages, and that's our view of it. I don't think it's going to be quite like that. But if you wanted to find, like in the phone book, you're looking for somebody's name. And you're going back and forth and, no, it's not there. What a shock. What a terror that will be for those who don't know Christ. Revelation chapter 14, going back just a little bit. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. The second death is for those who have died physically, resurrected without Jesus Christ in their lives, and then they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the fifth point here, those whose names are not written in the book of life will go into eternal punishment forever. Now, and I'm just going to park here for a second. The if you want to write this in the front of your Bible or in the back of the Bible, every Bible usually has some spare pages. And in those spare pages, if somebody says, well, hell's not forever. No, hell is forever. And two verses I'm going to give to you, and I'm going to read them as well. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And I've said this several times as we go through this particular Matthew 24. But Matthew twenty five forty six says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The adjective that is in here is eternal. Both are eternal. Life and punishment are eternal. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 as well. It says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So again, everlasting is the adjective that is being used to describe the duration of eternity in hell and also in heaven. We will be there forever. It's like if we have eternal life, is it really eternal if you can lose it? 
No, it's temporal. And that's why I believe in eternal life, that you cannot lose your salvation if you are actually saved. Now, there are those, and I remember seeing a guy on television. Sometimes I watch, and this was years ago, I watched the guys on there, see what they have to say, the evangelist. And this one guy came up, and he was talking about how our God is so loving that he would not assign somebody to hell for all of eternity. A loving God wouldn't do that, is what he said. And what this is referring to is what we know as soul sleep, or also the doctrine of total annihilation. And this is a doctrine that has erroneously been uh, pilfered throughout the Christian community because God is a loving God. He would never do that. No, our God is a righteous God, and he's a just God as well. And these mistaken views of the soul sleep which come up, they come up because, uh, well, one point is death is called sleep in the New Testament. And there's a couple of verses. It says, then Stephen... Then he, Stephen, knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not change them or charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And it, it gives the reader the idea that, well, if you're asleep, you're going to wake up. Remember the disciples said that about Lazarus? <laughs> the Lord told him, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up. He was using the, the phrase, to be asleep, the verb to sleep, he was using it in such a way to describe the temporal nature of death. Death is temporary. We are going to awaken, and that's in the physical body. The physical body will awaken. We know that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the body and how the body that we possess now is the seed of the new body. It's like the seed inside of an apple doesn't look like the tree at all. But when you plant the seed and it starts coming up, you go, whoa, look at that tree. That's an amazing tree from that seed. That's the difference between our body now and the body we're going to have in the future. And so the sleep is just temporary, but that's what Jesus was referring to. And he had to go back to the disciples and say, Lazarus is dead. Okay, and so he made the connection between falling asleep from this body, this life, and then being resurrected again. He said, you know, that's when you die. But for the believer, it's just like sleep. Then there's this mistaken view that the soul cannot exist apart from the body. That once you die, then that's it. You're all done. And of course, that is not true from Scripture, which I'll get into in a minute. And there's this view, according to Psalm chapter 6, verse 5, no one remembers you when he is dead, or excuse me, no one remembers you when he is dead, who praises you from the grave. So it's referring to praising God from the grave, like there's no consciousness that is there. And there's this idea that the dead know nothing. They don't know what's going on. That is not true as well. And I'll give responses to these. This sleep refers to the state of the body, which is temporary, which I already said. And this is where Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 24, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Remember the little girl that he raised from the dead? He said, she's sleeping. No, she was dead and it was temporary for her to be in that state. Also, the soul can and does exist apart from the body. Just because 
the body is not animated with life doesn't mean the person that inhabited that body is no longer existing. Let me give you one set of scriptures here. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. So Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you, and when you come, it rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will speak and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your harps. Maggots are the bed beneath you and worms are your covering. That's pretty descriptive of experiencing something that is very unpleasant. And the unrighteous dead, that's where they go. In, in today's day, they go down to Hades. It is also referred to as Sheol. It is not the bottomless pit. It is not Gehenna. Those are two different things. The unrighteous dead are in a place, like in Luke chapter 16, Abraham's bosom. The rich man was in a place of torment, and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, which is called the garden of God, which is the paradise of God, is wherever God is. So that is heaven as opposed to hell or Sheol or the grave or Hades. So there is the distinction there between those two abodes of the dead. Then there is God is a spirit and exists and we are created in his image. God does not have a physical body. Now that's hard for us to comprehend that there's an all-powerful being which is out there but you can't touch him, you can't see him, you, you can't even relate to him unless he puts himself, so to speak, in a man and the man relates to us. That's why Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You cannot look at God and see him. God who is a spirit must be worshipped in spirit and truth. But Jesus, the Son of God, is what we see when we see God. He has incorporated the 100% God into 100% man. And he is the one that will be like that forever. He will never cease to be a man. And he has never ceased and will never cease to be God as well. So God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verse 24 declares that. And then also believers and unbelievers, conscience in Abraham's bosom, Luke chapter 16 that I talked about, both Lazarus and the rich man were fully conscious, even though they didn't have bodies. Now, what kind of bodies do they have? Because Lazarus was reclining on Abraham's bosom. I, I don't know. I... I don't know how that all works out, but I do know that our spirit will be reunited with our body, which will be transformed like the seed into the tree. And once that happens, we live forever, and it's eternal bliss for us at that time. So to say that there is soul sleep is not a doctrinally sound doctrine. It is not theologically sound doctrine, which is out there. When we die, we still exist forever because we are created in the image of God who is eternal and God will not destroy that image because that image is also holy that it is something that is in the image of God and he will not destroy it that's why hell lasts forever now some people say well but I want to be destroyed well 
you can't be who you are without being created in the image of God. Therefore, you are eternal. And you might say, well, why did he even create me? Yeah, you know, you can go down these roads and it's like uh, Joe Friday. Just the facts, man. This is just the way God set it up. And, you know, I've often thought about this. Why did God do it this way? Remember Jesus, when he went to the cross, he said, Father, if there be any other way, was there another way? There was not another way. This was the only way. Well, God, he gathers himself a people that will be the bride of Jesus Christ. Was there any other way to get that bride without creating billions of people and only getting a few out of there? There was no other way. That was the only way it could happen. But God is not unjust. He gives everybody the choice. And so because of that free will, people either choose to go to heaven or they choose to go to hell. God is not sending anybody to hell because he just wants to, because he's a capricious God. He is not willing that any should perish. But it's the individual that says, I will not have you as God over me. And that's just like us. Do you want anybody telling you what to do? I don't. You don't tell me what to do. Even if you get pulled over for a ticket, which, praise the Lord, I haven't in a long, long time, since I was three. But this idea that you would get pulled over for a ticket and you, you want to be submissive to the police officer, the natural reaction of the flesh is, no, just leave, just let them chase you you know something like that you don't want to be submissive to that then you have to appear before the judge do you want to go before the judge no you don't want people telling you what to do and it's the same thing now with the sexes women don't want men telling the women what to do women want to tell men what to do and the men say i'm not listening to you i'm going to do whatever i want and then there's this conflict that goes back and forth we don't want to be submissive to anyone at any time we want our freedom and that is rebellion against god because we don't want him as a human species ruling over us it's only when god's spirit works in us that we become submissive we say okay god i will submit to your will and by the way when we get to heaven this will be as natural as breathing we will be submissive to god and submissive to each other we will not once consider ourselves greater than someone else and that's the new nature that we will have if somebody comes up and says will you help me or will you do this for me or i know this could be difficult and you can say absolutely whatever you need i i will do it and we will say that with jesus too whatever you command lord i will do and we will have no trepidation we will have no reservations about doing exactly what he asks or anyone else and it'll be so natural to us but right now we resist everything do you like uh, being submissive to the irs <laughs> i don't but, you know, I do it grudgingly. When you get this jack and you kind of, you know, Popeye underneath your breath. That's how he used to talk. So those whose names are written in the book of life will shine like the stars. Now, exactly how this works, I think it's because the Spirit of God is within us. He creates us to be new in our, our makeup and our natures. And because of that, light 
comes from inside of us going out. Now, where does it say this in Scripture? The first verse is Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You ever try to look at the sun with your eyes? Stupid little kids, you know, when there is an uh, eclipse going on. If you look real fast, you can kind of see it. Just, uh, uh, you know, and you blind yourself looking at that. You can't look at it. But in our spiritual state, we'll look at each other and we'll say, look how bright you are. No, look how bright you are. And it also says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in the crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. We are going to be bright people, so to speak. Everyone who is in God's kingdom is going to shine and radiate light everywhere. Now, is that foreign to you? I know it's in movies and stuff like that. Where it, Remember that um, film Cocoon? You know, they came out and they're just bright everywhere. Or uh, Beauty and the Beast. You know, when he transformed from the beast back into the guy and light came out of his fingers. It's going to be just like that for us. We're going to have light that radiates from us. We will be bright and shining ones. And the clothing we're going to be wearing is also white. Now, at this particular point in the great white throne judgment, I believe these verses that I'm going to give you refers to this particular time. Every knee will bow to Jesus. I believe this is when it is going to happen. Isaiah 45, verses 23 through 24. It says, By myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Romans 14 verse 11 quotes this verse. says, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So all of us will bow to Jesus Christ. And I would recommend you practice now. When you are in prayer time, you get down on your knees before the Lord. You confess your sins. You pour out your heart to him. You call him God of the universe, the great God, the I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the creator of all things. And you give him praise and worship that you bow to him because it is going to happen again in the future. The issue with this, there really is no issue. For those of us who are believers, we will do it willingly. You bet. No problem. We are down on our knees. But then those who are of the flesh who are being condemned to hell, it is going to be difficult for them, and for the rest of eternity they will express regret and remorse. Also, everyone will give an account of themselves, and this includes us as well. But at the great white throne judgment, it is going to happen there. Romans chapter 14, verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
Uh, if when we'll get to it, Matthew chapter 25 talks about the sheep and the goats. God is having a conversation with those who are sheep and those who are goats. Remember, when did I visit you in prison? And when did I see you without food or clothing? And he says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me as well. Uh, Enter into your rest. And then he turns to the goats and they said, well, when did we do this? And he says, well, when you never did it to the least of these, you did not do it for me as well. And so he casts them into the lake of fire. And all of us, now that, that is when Romans chapter 14, verse 12, and Matthew chapter 25, that's the great white throne judgment. But we will do the same thing, where there's going to be a conversation with us before God alone. Now, I don't know how he's going to do this with billions of people. I have no idea. But we are going to do it. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we almost appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So we're going to give an account of ourselves. Well, Lord, this is what I did. And we're going to express, I'm sure, regret. This is what I should have done and I didn't do. And this is what I should have done and I did. That's all I can give you, Lord, are these things. And your will be done. And what he will say to those who have accepted Jesus Christ, he will say, well, here's your reward. And it will be based on what we do. I'm going to give you an example of this. Those of you who are in here that are going to help, December 7th, Saturday, you're going to be over there in the parking lot. You're going to be assisting. And you will be able to turn to Jesus and say, well, you know, I helped on that Saturday. Well done. Here's a billion dollars. No, yeah, well, you, you understand his, his gifts are just going to be incredible for the smallest works that we do. But if we constantly say, nah, I'm not helping. Well, you get nothing. There is no reward. And so many of us in Christendom, we just say, no, I have other things to do. I'm not going to assist in getting out the gospel. I'm not going to assist in the body of Christ. The Lord has called us to do this. And so he called us to be a witness. Now, how we do that, the mode of operation, that changes. Whether we go to a foreign country or we do it here locally, it doesn't matter. He just says, be involved. And it's not just the giving of your funds to do it. It is you actually putting your hand to the plow. You don't pay somebody else to grab hold of the plow you grab the plow yourself. And all of us are supposed to be doing that. And if we say, no, I'm not doing it. I'm busy. Well, as the book of Job says, you might get into heaven by the skin of their teeth, but there will be no reward. Now, how do you reconcile that when you get to heaven? Well, people will get in. They won't have reward. They'll still have the glorified bodies. But the responsibility, the reward that they get will be minimal as opposed to those who gave of their whole lives, they will just reap in a huge harvest of reward. And God has told us these things ahead of time. So if we are constantly saying no to whatever the Lord wants to do, no matter what church you are in, no matter what fellowship you belong to, he asks us to be involved and not do it grudgingly. You know, like little kids, you tell them to clean up their room, Fine, 
clean up my room. And they go off and they clean up the room. What reward is there for that child in that? None. We have to be able to do it willingly. It's like when we give money in tithes or offerings or however you want to term it. We're supposed to do it with a hilarious heart. Yeah, I get to serve. <laughs> and you laugh about it. You know, so this is great. This is wonderful. Instead of going, fine, I'll be there. Just don't ask me again. Yeah. If that's the attitude, don't even show up. And, and if you want to go to heaven and have no reward, okay. Nobody is requiring us to just fall in line. And I got to stop. I'm right at uh, 10.56. There's so much more here. My prayer for you is that you were able to willingly submit to Christ, just like it'll be in heaven, where we say, whatever you want, Lord, I will do it. And those who believe, of course, we have this inheritance, and we remember this idea of uh, Jesus going to the cross being buried, rising again from the uh, grave on the third day. And that's why we receive communion. And so this morning we are going to receive communion. And and those who receive communion, it used to be in the church, like if you weren't baptized, they say, do not receive communion because you're really not a disciple. You haven't followed through and been obedient. It also says in Scripture that some take it in an unworthy manner and they have fallen asleep as a result. You know, if you confess your sins to God and you want to receive communion, great. But I would encourage everyone just to be in obedience with that, just to confess the sins. And that's what we do at this time, remembering Jesus and his sacrifice for us going to the cross. So if the worship team would come up, we're running a little late here. And uh, as we're singing this song, if you need to confess some sins to God... Go ahead and do it. If you don't think you should be taking communion, well, you can withhold. But it is for those who believe in Jesus Christ, who have accepted him as the Lord and Savior. So after the song starts playing, the guys will come up and they'll lower the center lights in here. So uh, we can spend some time in worship and confessing to God.